We've been asking you tonight about what sound of nature you could not do without shelves in Swan Hills, Alberta says the great horned owls talk to each other late at night from about January to around now when the migrators return. I love them hoot hooting. The reason we asked you this or I asked you this is because it's not easy. It's easy not to notice the sounds of all the other creatures we share our space with. The sounds that we make, we make a lot of noise apparently, can drown them out, especially in the city. My next guest though says the air around us is vibrating with sonic lessons and we have to stop and listen. He also sounds an alarm about what's happening to our sonic landscapes. David George Haskell is a writer and biologist. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, explores the story of sound on earth, looking at the emergence, diversification, and loss of the world's sounds. And he joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you. This is a fascinating subject because I was, I was, you know, I live in a city um, in Victoria, which is actually quite a, quite a nice city in terms of the nature, but birds arrived on my balcony again the other day for the first time in many, many months. And you instantly notice that they're back. And I had sort of looked through your book and was thinking about speaking with you. And it, and it really reminded me of just how important the sounds of nature are and how quickly we forget about them sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, birds are a great example because of course they're the great, the vocal species that we are most attuned to other than ourselves. Right. So of course we're attuned to human language and human, human music uh, but birds mostly are singing at the same frequencies and at, at tempos and with melodies that, that our ears can grasp, unlike, say, cicadas or, uh, you know, dolphins out in, in the ocean, which, you know, they have rich vocal repertoires and, and indeed vocal cultures in the case of dolphins. And yet they're sort of beyond the can of our senses. So birds are a, a great connector. And sound is, it passes through obstacles and so it, it tends to grab our attention in the way that some other senses don't and yields information about the world that is not available to other senses. Which, so the reason you, know, you hear the birds coming back from, from your balcony or outside a house is because the, the, the sound is, is coming through. And that's the reason why the birds are singing in the first place, because many live in pretty dense habitats. And sound is a great way of getting your voice and your presence and whatever you have to say out through dense vegetation or through dense, uh, or you know, in the case of the oceans or night singing creatures, there's, there's very little light. And so sound is a great uh, alternative to visual communication there. You touched on something fascinating, uh, which was, I, and I had no idea that this was true, that, that birds, in fact, have dialects to some extent. Yeah, some bird species do. Birds are interesting because there are some species that just know their song from the get-go, even if they're born uh, with no ability to hear or some experimenter punctures their eardrum so they can't hear. They sing a perfect song, just as insects don't learn their songs. But then there are other birds, mostly song birds, like sparrows and warblers, that, that learn their song by listening to their neighbors and, and their parents and those with wide geographic ranges often are broken into sub-dialects that are not gen mostly not genetic differences, but because the birds are, are learning the local lingo and the local accent, if you like. And so, so just as when I open my mouth, people can tell roughly where I'm from, and usually it's not from wherever I'm speaking. Uh, yeah, I've got sort of an English accent uh, that doesn't exactly sound like a Tennessee accent. Um, the, the same is true, say, with, with song sparrows or with white-crowned sparrows. When they start to sing, others can know, do, do you belong to this neighborhood? And, and more detailed than that, for some of them, 
do you belong to this particular patch of the neighborhood, this, this square mile, or are you from somewhere another few, few miles over? And so that there's a, a very fine-grained structure that emerges through learning. So we're, we're not the only species that learns its, its focalizations. Birds are in, in, that, uh, in that realm too. You pointed out that the sonic landscape that we live in um, even though it is changing, the sonic landscape we lived in, we live in now, took a very long time to develop because for a very long time to make noise was to invite unwanted attention. Yes, and that's still true now. I mean, when any creature that makes a sound, if there are any predators around, those predators can can find them. And so, to this day, it's it's things like frogs that can jump away, or flying insects that can fly away, or or birds that can get away, or. Uh, well-defended fish or fast, fast-moving shrimp, things like that, that make sound. Slow-moving, defenseless creatures like salamanders and snails and worms and jellyfish tend to be silent. And if we look back into time, for hundreds of millions of years, as far as we can discern from the fossil record, there are no sound-making structures in the early oceans probably because it was such a risky thing to make a sound. It was only when things like wings and um, you know, r- jumping legs evolved that suddenly the risk of making a sound lowered a little bit. And so the potential for sonic communication that could then get to work and then and produce the amazing diversity of sounds that we now have around the world. One of the points of, of your latest book, though, is that we are losing some of that marvelous phantasmagoria of sound so to speak that the uh, and what the impact of that will be um how did you set about approaching that and, and what message were you trying to deliver well i think two messages one is that we live in a world of, of sonic wonders and that human music and human language are part of a much wider diversity of musics and languages and, and sonic nuance around the world. And there's great joy in opening one's ears to that and knowing some of the stories behind where did these sounds come from and how did they come to be. So that's one side of the, the story, the message of the book. The other side is that these riches are imperiled. They're imperiled in, in a few ways, one of which is when we clear habitats, we remove the sensory diversity of the world, say when a tropical forest is is cleared or where we clear a prairie and, and, and plant wheat, we lose a lot of, of the species from that habitat. And so the rich variegations of, of species diversity and of sensory diversity are, are lost in that way. So it's that in a way, that's a crisis of losing sound and, and some of the, the marvels of sonic diversity. On the other hand, some places we're pumping so much noise into the environment, human noise, that other species can't hear one another. In effect, it's so loud, and in the, particularly in the oceans, it's so loud that, that, that some creatures are actually physically damaged by the sound waves that are coming through the water. In other places, like in, in noisy cities or around industry on land, some species can adapt, say some birds just sing louder and at a higher pitch so they can kind of break through the traffic noise and the rumbly noises of industry, but others can't. Uh, and their, their means of communication from one to another are, are basically blocked, which means that their populations then suffer and dwindle and in, in some case, more extreme cases disappear. Then related to all this is what I think of as the crisis of inattention is that more and more we're becoming a species that listens just to our, our own voice. 
to the exclusion of the other voices of the living earth. And of course, we need to listen to one another and we need to do a better job of listening to, to other humans. But alongside that, what would it mean if, if we humans, who are now the most powerful species on the planet, could do a little bit of a better job of actually listening to what other creatures are disclosing through their varied sounds? Might we be better kin? Might we be better members of the life community if we were listening? And, and the great thing there is we get joy from this practice of listening. You know, it's great to identify a few frogs or, or hear the first singing birds in the spring. These are sources of joy and wonder. And they're also ways of sort of orienting us in, a, in our actions and our ethics. So ethics isn't a dreary thing. It's a joyful thing to connect with, with these other species. Primates, though, as you've often said, primates are our noisy creatures. We tend to not, we tend to ignore others. We're not, not ultimately, but we're prone to wanting to listen to each other. We are, and, you know, and that is part of our nature as, as primates. If you go to uh, South America and listen to the monkeys in the they're always chattering away at one another. Or I've never been to Africa to be around chimpanzees, but but the films that I've seen and the books that I've read about their behaviors, yeah, they're vocal as well. Now, they don't have a as quite a sophisticated vocal language as as we do. We're we're odd in that we've taken a kind of bird like way of communicating, like really vocally sophisticated, and combined primate culture and so we're with with the with the bird monkeys if if you like because we're so vocal and yet we retain a lot of the the cultural sophistication that our close relatives the the, the chimpanzees and, and the gorillas and others have and so yeah it's part of our nature to do that but i would say it's also part of our nature to to listen so for 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 many people living in close relation to nature around around the world today and for all of our ancestors in the past the idea of not listening to other species was just insane because you weren't, you couldn't put food on the table or know how, how things were changing or when the storm was coming in if you were not paying attention. Now we have the luxury of just putting in the earbuds, not paying attention to anything, not smelling our breakfast or paying attention to the voices outside the window and so on because we you know it's not vital to our survival but until very recently and in, indeed for many people still today it is really vitally important to be tuned in to these rhythms and textures and all the rich information that's out there in the soundscapes of the living world I'm speaking with David George Haskell. He's a writer and biologist. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, looks at the story of sound on Earth, celebrating the emergence diversification and looking at the loss of the world's sounds. We'll also talk about his 2012 book, The Forest Unseen, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, a fascinating example of how you can take a very small piece of land and see a very long way uh, into the wonders of the Earth with such a small piece of land. We'll be back with that. We're speaking with David George Haskell. He's a writer and biologist. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, explores the story of sound on Earth, looks at the diversif diversification, emergence of sound, and the loss of the world's sounds. I wanted to talk to you a bit about this fascinating uh, book that you wrote in 2012, uh, earlier book that you, where you essentially observed a very small patch of land for a very, for a while, and then allowed you to see so much about uh, a much broader look through that one little piece. What was the inspiration behind that? It's such a fascinating way of, of, of looking at something in such a, I mean, we could all essentially do that, right? We could all take mm -hmm. a little piece of land and, and then observe it for a while and see what we learned. 
Yeah, and my hope for the book is to inspire people to do that, whether you're living in a city or out in the countryside or wherever you are, through close and particularly repeated attention to one spot, you can go deep into the stories of that particular place. And, and in fact, I've done this with, with some, some trees say in New York City and in Denver, Colorado, where, where I returned again and again to a particular tree. And my second book, The Songs of Trees, was about that. But you know, coming back to the, the inspiration for this was partly I just wanted to go to the forest and without an agenda for a change, you know, as a teacher and as a scientist, I'm always bringing questions and lesson plans and things to the forest. And I seldom, I felt like I seldom walked into the forest just with open senses without any expectation of this is what I'm going to see. This is what I'm going to think about now. So I picked this little patch of forest. It's a place I'd never seen before. I just wandered on January the 1st through the woods and found a flat rock and then the area in front, you know, flat so that I could sit on it with some comfort. The area in front of that, just a, this, an area the size of a small dining room table, became my focus for observations through the year where I could open my senses to the place. And then the second motivation was to try through that process of opening my senses to the forest to try and learn a little bit more through direct experience rather than just reading stuff in textbooks or in scientific articles. In a, in a way, I was asking the forest to give me, you know, renew my sense of curiosity and in a way, give me a reading list to go to the library. Cause you know, I love reading books and about things and learning stuff, but here I wanted the forest to say, Oh yeah, you saw this ant or a caterpillar or a leaf, or you heard this sound, go and find out what that was and, and, and excavate some of the stories that are behind it. And then, you know, the book is trying to share both the stories and the experience of the, of observation. You did have one section of that where you sort of, you where you're always sort of in wonderment at some of what is existing in front of you. And one of them is about resisting cold, which it turns out, as you point out, so pointedly humans are terrible at. We are, you know, I mean, Without technological aids, we're we're in we're in trouble. And you know, and so I went to the forest and just looking at the chickadees, right, and the, and the titmice, small, very common birds, and thinking about their life in in the forest. And this was on a day when it was a pretty good wind chill. I think it was down around zero or, or something like zero Fahrenheit, um, or, or close to it. And I, you know, I was really feeling it through my coat and my scarf. And I, I just, well, I'm going to take all these clothes off and see what happens. You know, which is, of course, high school students think that's very all very amusing. As as you get older, getting naked isn't quite so interesting anymore. But you know, on a cold day, uh, I found that I could last a minute or two at most before my fingers started to go so numb they weren't working, and my body was sort of beyond shivering. So there were all those bodily manifestations, but then, then the thing that happened was my mind, in the back of my mind, there was this growing sense of alarm, that this is a very, very, not just anxiety, but some sort of deep dread, that this is a deeply problematic situation we're in here. And so you know, I put my clothes back on and then you know, got back home and, and warmed up, and there, were, there was no problem with it. But then I, the reflection is, I within two minutes, I was getting into this very bad state. These little chickadees that are a fraction of the size and the weight of me make it through the forest all through the winter. And of course, chickadees, this was in Tennessee, which is a pretty mild winter compared to most places. Boreal chickadees are the way up there in, in, in the North Woods. 
have an even even bigger challenge. And all they have to fuel them, they don't have a supermarket, of course. They just find little spider eggs and 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 uh, you know, pupae of caterpillars and, and, and things like that to feed this little furnace that keeps them going all the way through the winter. And so even though rationally I can understand as a scientist, well, they've got insulation and and they feed themselves a certain number of calories a day. And and you know, some of them don't make it about half of the, certainly the young chickadees die every winter. So I I knew all that, but after this experience, I felt it in my bones. What a crazy, crazy life cycle that they have. And I understood myself different. We're tropical creatures that have only recently, even cultures that have lived, say, in, in very cold areas for thousands of years, in terms of evolution, that's a blink of the eye that for most of human evolution, all human beings and all of our ancestors lived in the tropics or the subtropics. And our bodies are still that. And so our clothes and our houses and all that tech sewing technology is all about recreating. It's basically a subtropical environment underneath the coat. David Haskell, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Great pleasure to be with you.